my friends, and welcome to the Everything Went Black podcast. Tonight's guest, Josh Bear, has been on the podcast at least two, maybe three times. He's a good friend of mine and um, a comic book creator, teacher, and a fan of uh, great music. So the conversation tonight is going to go to many different places. I launched the GoFundMe campaign for Savage Gold Cold Press. It's uh, something I've been working on for the last several months uh, to get some equipment to put together a Savage Gold Cold Press facility and um, put it up this morning and I was just floored by the response. A lot of people uh, just jumped right on board and donated. So if uh, you want to check this out, go to GoFundMe uh, Savage Gold Coffee and uh, you'll see it. You can check out the Everything Went Black Facebook and there'll be a link there posted as well. Um, you don't have to donate, but if you do, I much appreciate it. But uh, please, if uh, you can just repost it, that would really help out. Before we get started, just want to run down the usual business. We have Datsusara and on it. You can get to them from uh, the everythingwentblackmedia.com website. Check out the portals. By now, you probably know all about both of these guys. Datsusara, they make hemp stuff, bags, workout equipment, chopsticks, t-shirts, rash guards, geese, socks, pretty much anything that you're going to need. On it promotes the living strong lifestyle, so check it out. And uh, yeah, thanks a lot. Um, I noticed there's been some uh, new reviews and star ratings on iTunes. Definitely appreciate that. And uh, yeah, so if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Mike Hill HQ. And once again, uh, if you're so inclined, give us a couple of likes on the Facebook page. That's kind of what happened in Williamsburg. The um, it's like fake creative people living there. Like every now, and then, I used to, you know, I used to find myself in Williamsburg more or less regularly because you know there was North Six was there. You know there was uh, was it Death by Audio, mm-hmm. and just oh, the yeah. vibe of the neighborhood was more conducive to like, you know, kind of people into music and art and everything. Every now and then I drive down there, um, going from point A to point B. And it's just like, it looks like South street seaport down by the waterfront. You know, it's like total, just filled with white people and like (laughs) suburban types and like dudes with like pork pie hats, you know, and like weird, like weekender types, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's a real drag, man. And, And like even this neighborhood's getting turning into that too, man. It's uh, when you go down to the Willow East side now, it's like you can just see the worst people in the world. And also, my friend and I, we um, still go to Odessa to yeah. like drawing sessions. Uh-huh. And without fail, when we're walking back midnight, well, I mean, for one thing, there's more bars in New York yeah. that per square foot than any place else, like in America. Um, so you get like the bar crowds, but yeah, I can't believe the stuff that people. Uh, like that somebody decided to get up today and they're going to go out to a bar and they're going to wear like shitty like um, Docksiders and like pants with like an untucked Oxford shirt. Yeah. I mean, it's like and not just one guy, like a zillion of them. It, it makes me want to like steal their lunch money from them, you know, mm-hmm. like twist their arm and take their lunch money away from them. And, that, and I'm not, you know, I'm a peaceful guy, man, but you can only... Push really so uh, push someone so far until they snap, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a bummer, man. You know, um, ABC No Rio. I had uh, Diami Bryant on the the show a while back, like a, you know, like a week ago, a while back, and he um 
he was like one of the bookers who did stuff for the Saturday matinees and they st- they bought the building and they had their final show at that location and mm-hmm. they're tearing the building down and rebuilding it but it's still going to be in the Lower East Side and like for the next two years they're doing shows and events like in different places so even though that that whole area has turned into just like shoe stores and restaurants and you know cool bars and whatever that place is still going to exist like the uh, community center is still going to be there that's cool yeah so that's like kind of cool like they were able to do that and you know with all the red tape and every time i mean they've been working on that for a, a long time like you know decades i think or at least 10 years and every time like a new uh, administration would change in the city it's almost like they had to start all over again from square one. ABC. Yeah, ABC No Rio. It'd be nice if, you know, I know uh, I used to try to contact them to go in there and do silk screens. And it was always as part of the, you know, as part of it being a DIY thing. It was really hard to, you know, if you on on paper, you call them, you contact them, you say, I want to use this resource. And then you sh- you go and do it. Yeah. I had a lot of trouble, like figuring out if there's any kind of clear cut way to actually get on a list, show up, be able to make make that happen. Right. Um, I think it was like a thing where you could like send them an email and they would get back to you and they never did. And yeah. And I've had friends since same thing. They're like, I wanna do silk screen somewhere in the city and I don't you know, I'm not in school and I, you know, don't wanna pay a studio. And I hate to tell them they, you know, they and they stumble upon ABC No Rio, and they're like, oh, maybe I could do that here. And it's a, it's so I hope that in the future, um, that like you said, the rebuilding. I hope that's one of the aspects of their infrastructure that they rebuild is actually becoming super efficient. Yeah, but you know, it's funny. Like as much I have like such a a, a double edged sword I, feeling and idea about like the DIY world because, um, you know. At, at the at its greatest, it's the greatest thing for self-expression and all these resources. But at its worst, it's just like a bunch of dudes like hanging out that are unmotivated and can't get anything done. So depending on who you're talking to, who actually is managing the email account, yeah. it could be the, the best guy in the world or like some dude who just shows up and doesn't really care. So that's kind of like because, you know, having been involved in the DIY like hardcore punk scene for many years and have kind of gotten out of that in the more recent years that's kind of like the vibe that I have it's like you know I love certain things about it but at, like organization and coordination are definitely not the strong suit you know and it's like whenever you're dealing with volunteers you're also dealing with uh, someone you know someone who may or may not, may not be motivated to do their job the right way because right. they figure well it's a volunteer you know I'm not getting paid you know I do this in my free time you know, and it's there's a, a large variety of people and how serious they take it. You know, some people are only around for a couple months, and some people are there for years, like Diami. Like Diami took his job, his position there very seriously, and he was very diligent with his job. But you know, not knowing people and being kind of like on the outside and trying to like make inroads, it's kind of a chore, really. You know what I mean? To really get into the inner circle and actually get your stuff, you know, get your stuff, be able to work on the material that you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. But I mean, did you ever have any success with them? No, I gave up and I ended up, when I've had to do silk screens in the past, um, you know, I'm a graduate of SVA. Uh, I've just bit in the bullet and gone and signed up for a silk screening class, even at, even though I know how to silk screen now. Well, kind of. Actually, I have to re, sometimes I'll take such big, uh, big gaps 
breaks, whatever, uh, that I got to relearn it once I yeah. get back in there. But that's not a bad deal. If you go to SVA, uh, if you pay $500, you'll have like an entire semester where you can silk screen to your heart's desire, depending how flexible your schedule is. Wow. It might be three or four or five nights that you can just go in during an afternoon and have unlimited access to the to that resource. Wow. Yeah, it's been pretty cool. So uh, I did. So if you hustle, you can. Um, let's see. I don't know how many thirty dollars t shirts it takes to you know equal five hundred dollars to, and then you know maybe you do a thousand dollars worth of shirts, and then you've actually made a profit for your effort. Is that something you do a lot of? Is like t shirt design type stuff, or you know, do you? I don't. I've never known you to really do that. Um, this one's mine. Uh, okay. yeah, just some stuff. I, I did it this year. I usually sell them at my tables when I do uh, comics festivals. Okay. So that's me. So I didn't even know that. Um, yeah, I should have brought you one. My last design was pretty cool. Um, I did this comics are the enemy t-shirt. I did a bam bam t-shirt like years ago when that was my main thing. And I did, sorry, my phone sounds like beautiful, like soap opera music. <laughs> the, um, and I did what else? Oh, I did this one T-shirt. That's the one I have on now. It's um, like these hands, like gripping, uh, gripping like a fistful of guts and just squeezing them. So uh, yeah, yeah, it's fun. I I'm like not. Um, I'm always like I said. I'm always trying to remember how to do it. So I'm always trying to. You know, it's not exactly something that I take to like a fish to water. Uh, you know, I'm not somebody who does. Um, Super neat, super straight silk screens every time, but pe some people have been happy with them. I screw up a lot of shirts. Yeah. And then I did, they made a, the band Integrity made a t shirt out of one of my designs. Oh, really? This year. Yeah. Right well, on, man. Well, actually, last time I was on here, I talked about my involvement with uh, the Henry and Glenn yes. book. Yes. Yep. And I depicted Dwid yeah. in one of the books, and he wrote me. Uh -huh. And he was like, oh, I saw. I saw you depicted me. I thought it was really funny. And actually, this is a pretty wild story. Yeah, because, go for it, man. Because Dwid, um, I made this parallel in, I have like, Danzig is having a dream in my comic that Dwid comes from the future and appears to him and tells him to appropriate the Sam Hain skull, which he took from a comic book. Yeah. Well, it was a Christar. Christar, yeah. By, I can't think of the guy who did the cover art. But uh, it'll come to me. I can picture his style. So I made this like parallel because I love integrity. They're like to me, they were as important in the nineties as Black Flag was in the eighties. And they, um, the integrity skull, the kind of smash skull. I'm flipping through some old comic books in like ten years ago, and there's a comic book called Blood by J. M. Demetheus and Kent Williams. I think did the art. I get his, I get the name wrong. There's two different Williams. But that blood was that a connection to like Mobius and Blade? Was it like a vampire like hunter thing? Yeah, it was. It was, yeah. but I don't know if it was connected to Mobius. More Count Morbius. I'm sorry. Not oh, not, Mo no. not Mobius the French. Not Philippe Durier, but I mean the like Morbius the uh, vampire and it was a, Blade. It was an independent imprint comic. It was put out by some kind of imprint of Marvel. Whether it had a Mobius, Morbius, a vampire connection, I don't know. But I did, it was vampire. You read it, huh? Yeah. Like yeah I'm trying like, to remember. It's like yuppies. It's like it's like naked yuppies like waking up in the morning and not knowing they're vampires. Yeah. It's very stream of consciousness. Right. And um, there's this part where they have the integrity skull. But this is 1987. 
and they have the integrity skull. And so I realized later that they appropriated the integrity skull, their icon. So Dwid wrote me and said, yeah, you're onto something. Because we did, I did take that from that comic book and I did do it in a way, creating sort of a, um, an analog with Danzig because I knew Danzig had borrowed imagery from comic books. So anyway, so I did that in the comic and then he, uh, he's become like, He's like made himself very accessible to me. And then he asked me yeah. to do a pinup for the re-release of Humanity is the Devil, where I re- redrew the Pusshead image, um, which is a cover for that. And then uh, they released that along with the CD, and then they made a T-shirt of it. Wow, I didn't know you were doing all this stuff. I knew that you were like, you know, sort of in the mix, but I didn't realize all this stuff had actually come and gone and been released and everything. Yeah, yeah. Wow. It's been a while since I've seen you. I, I think. know. I was looking at our old emails. It's been a wh- quite a while. Huh. Did we? Did we ever? Uh, last time I was on here, did we ever do the thing where we actually sat down and talked about in my head? Because I think that morphed. Yeah, we just, did. We did. Did it, or did we just kind of? No, talk no, we about... did it, but we talked about a ton of other things too. Yeah, yeah. But that's kind of like the beauty of talking about like a specific record or some. I want to do more of those actually, of like classic. I started doing. Like I started that idea, but it didn't. It didn't. I never followed up with it. But uh-huh. I think that's a really cool like starting point for a lot of good conversations. Is like you sort of meditate on a particular record. Yeah. Talk about the record, but that sort of germinates other ideas that you go off into these different tangents that sort of were spawned by the, the discussion of that particular record. But we did it in my head. That yeah. was for sure one of the few classic records or whatever episodes I did. But um, you know, I mean. Integrity uh, are, you know, still pretty active, man. They're out oh, there yeah. making making records, touring, doing all that stuff. Yeah, they just signed to Relapse, and their last album was great. Um, snake. Can't think of the name of it. it had the word snake in it. Um, but, uh, yeah, they had the song on there called um, something like... I can't remember. We can't just can't win in this world, or nobody gets out of here alive, or something. And it's a really, really good dirgy song. Cool. Yeah. I never met Dwight. I've never contacted him. I've never been in touch with him. And but it's he. He's always seemed like somebody that I might have a lot in common with because of uh, you know the imagery of his song lyrics and some of the artwork they use, and his you know fascination with Manson and comics and yeah, you know the occult and like yeah. you know, darkness and all this other stuff. You know, well, I interviewed him in like '95. For a, a zine, yeah. And then I think that something happened where none of it, like, none of it was recorded, but I just wrote it, I just transcribed it from memory. Like, I was like, I looked at my questions. I'm like, I remember what he said here. I remember what he said here. Uh, yeah, he's got it. He's a, he's good at, the guy's good at turning a phrase. That's why we started talking about comics, but, um, you know, you're, you're pretty heavy, you're heavily involved in the independent scene. And, uh, you know, do you do you still read any any mainstream comics at all? Because I know like one of the things I'm I want to talk about was how right. shitty it is now. Um, no, kind of. I might, I might. I think that the last thing I was reading was like five years ago. As you know, I worked at the comic book store yeah. that uh, Cosmic Comics, our friend Mark owned, and that was you know back to five years ago. Yeah. I could see. Anything I wanted that was coming out, I could see. But I still was only reading Garth Ennis's Punisher. Right. A lot of Brubaker books were good. Yeah. I like Bendis. I understand. It's interesting now seeing what a kind of a, 
I understand he has him and Mark Millar. I understand they have their excesses and people get annoyed with them and they resent them because they're so good and they're very successful. But I used to love those guys. Whether Bendis is doing absolute, you know, if he's, well, if he's after 20 years, if he's starting to do only bad writing, there's a precedent for that because all the guys that we love growing up from Marvel, you know, they would hit a point where it was like, you can't believe, you know, no, no, you know, no offense to Tom DeFalco, but you know, you can find out weird eight, nine, early eighties Marvel tune ones that he wrote that are really good. Sure. And then years later, he, so he wrote like a hundred issues of spider girl. And, um, some people might like Thor. I don't know. I didn't, I never really found him to be readable. But you go back and to stuff that was going on before we were really conscious of what good writing was. And these guys at their prime were, y- were young and good, but they get burned out to fucking grind. Yeah, it's, it's a hard job, man. I mean, it's just, you know, that, that's, that's why a lot of these, these names sort of come and go with time. You know, like Roy Thomas and all these old school guys, Doug Moenk. You know, it's like they have like these very brief periods where their, their output is like brilliant. And then they either get canned or fade into obscurity after writing like a hundred issues of like She-Hulk or something like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And sometimes, yeah, they, sometimes they, uh, they must really love it because a lot of those guys did hang on for a long time. The guy who always impressed me was Grunewald. His writing was, um, you know, his writing was good on, uh, for like a hundred issues of Captain America. It was good, pretty good on Quasar. Um, it was good on Marvel Two and One before that. It was good on Squadron Supreme. He was pretty good. I mean, he's not a, you know, he's not Alan Moore, but he was a great like mainstream writer. Yeah. Um. You know, I love uh, Bill Mantlo. Oh yeah, yeah. And that's uh, um. Yeah, you're you're the ROM. Uh, ROM. He does ROM. He did ROM rather. Yeah, and he was great. Um, I think that he was. If you try to read really late Mantlo before, like the like uh, when he did did Alpha Flight, uh, I think that those are pretty hard to read. I think there's and what was always good about him was his weirdness. Like when I was a kid, I'd find certain comics like that I got obsessed with. Like and years later, you find out like you're skimming through it and you look at the writer and it was it was it was um, Mantlo. I mean, he always had, he was completely unafraid to kind of just push things together aesthetically that aren't supposed to go together. Like, I'm going to have um, Spider-Man and Doctor Doom and the Vision team up, and they're fighting a, a deformed vamp, va- vampire pilgrim back in 1600. Like, it was always, like, super weird. Yeah. And uh, he'd be unafraid to, like, mix tones up, you know? And his description, his panel descriptions. Anyway, so I'm going on and on about who I love, but yeah, we were supposed to talk about. Well, I mean, we could talk about whatever, really. But it's just like I think it's a good setup, though, for how how far things have fallen in like 2016. Yeah. You know, I mean, the whole point of being creative and doing art is to keep moving forward, and I feel like comic books were moving forward up until a few years ago. Like I'm talking mainly. Uh, I'm talking about the mainstream. Yeah, I agree. I mean. I've never really been like an underground comic fan, like aside from like Eight Ball and Hate and like you know Peter Bag and Crumb, you know Crumb. Well, yeah, Crumb. Crumb was like you know an icon, really. Have you read Have you read Stray Bullets? Yes. Yes, yeah. Stray Bullets. Yeah, I enjoyed that. Yeah. You know, I I mean, there's I'm not against it. I just there's not a lot that's really resonated with me. I mean, Stray Bullets was great. You know, um, Love and Rockets. Oh yeah, well yeah, they're, they're Hernandez brothers, pretty much all they're like Luba, Love and Rockets, um, yeah. you know, all that stuff's great, you know. But I'm not like a 
deeply entrenched in it to to the extent that I am with what that I was with like mainstream comics because like you know the escapist element to it coupled with good writing and good artwork you know the same the same reason why I love horror movies and science fiction movies it's like you know it's a different version of reality where like if you read love and rockets it's like that's like kind of could be your life you know you could be having a conversation with a friend and it's similar to what's going on in love and rockets and stuff like that you know what i mean yeah it's true and um and i appreciate that too but these sort of overblown larger than life aspects of like mainstream comics of you know i've, I've, I've always loved that Appeals stuff to you, right yeah i mean love and rockets i've been revisiting it lately and the, a lot of times when you walk away from it, you're like, that was like, it's one of the reasons that book is visceral is because it's uh, got a lot of violence in it. Yeah, it's definitely. A lot, of, a lot of sex, a lot of conflict, a lot of violence. And um, probably within, within uh, violence that's within like reasonable terms, it's not like anybody goes in and mows down like, a you know... Um, a, a, a pavilion full of strangers with a machine gun. Yeah. It's more like things like just reach this like tension point. Yeah, it's like fist fights or stabbings or someone pulls a gun. You know, it's like a very personal sort of uh, realistic, um, you know, portrayal of violence, you know, yeah. or someone gets beat up or something like that. Right, right. Which is no fun, you know. You don't have to get killed to be a victim of violence. You can just get your you know nose broken or something like that. Yeah, and the man's to suggest a whole underworld. You know, they'll have a couple of figures who are just really toxic. Yeah. And you just brush up against them and it suggests, like, this whole criminal, like, um, strata. The, uh, the, the other thing I've been observing about Love and Rockets lately, because I've been having my students copy panels from it. Yeah. And I, I forget how, I mean, there's a tradition with comics where um, some people, like in the 50s and 60s, when people used to do facial expressions or be some artists, and Dave Sim just wrote a whole thing about this, about the competing attitudes from like cartoonists like Alex Raymond versus uh, somebody like, um, oh, I'm forgetting his name. It'll come to me. But there was like a new guy who did The Heart of Juliet Jones. I'm forgetting his name, but he had a really weird career. He ended up doing... Uh, ghosting for the guy who did Dagwood like in the 80s. Oh, okay. He, he did everything. He did like an issue of, I saw he did the inks on an issue of um, uh, Mark Greenwald's comic from New Universe. Guys, I can't think of his name, but his career was all over the place. And this guy who did The Heart of Juliet Jones, when somebody made a facial expression, it would be really contorted. If somebody forgot their forgot their bracelet back at the jewelry store and they pound their head. They're, like the look of frustration on their head was on their face is, was really spontaneous. And yeah. like he'd be able to capture fleeting expressions. And according to people like Dave Sim, he said like Alex Raymond would be like, what are you doing? I'm in tradition where even when somebody is punching somebody else, they kind of have this weird static expression on their, an expressionlessness. Unless somebody's laughing or screaming and a lot of those comics the facial expressions barely change. And there's kind of like a, a theory behind that, that you can get away with that as an artist. And maybe even you, the, you'll, you can heighten the experience instead of lessening it for the reader because they think that people project facial expressions onto bl seemingly blank faces. Wow. Yeah, so there's like, suppose, huh. supposedly there's like these two schools of art where um, some, Pettibone told me this too. He was like, you don't need to make your figures in your art feel for the viewer they'll 
they'll just make it almost a blank slate and people will project oh, onto wow. it. Wow. So that's interesting, man. That's like some like hunter gatherer, like, like projection, like reality modeling or something like that. That's really interesting, man. I didn't yeah. know about that. Yeah. It's helped me drawing because it's hard to do facial expressions. So if you have that as a safety valve, like, well, if I blow it trying to make this person look confused or whatever, dizzy or sick, it's okay because if, if the more unexpressive it is, the more people will have the potential to get it based on this system. So anyways, looking at Hernandez Brothers stuff, it's just like, um, it's very much, so the, the problem with that school art is that you can end up with a real kind of JCPenney catalog kind of world sure. of... Um, and, you know, populated by this kinds of figures and love and rockets. It's like the frames are the way, the moments that they pick are really weird. It's like the way they frame things and cut them and the expressions on people's faces. Um, they are like, uh, they are like early petty bones where you're kind of coming, stumbling in upon a weird moment, like where, um, you're not exactly sure. Like one person is kind of off balance and the other person's, head is cropped so you only see their chin yeah it's um so anyways that's another thing that have been really hot like um hyped on looking at love and rockets recently and thinking about how much the tradition of uh how much i wonder i wonder how much they kind of took from pettybone i was gonna say that because they were in a lot of ways i mean they like pettybone being based in la and the hernandez brothers being based out there too and also you know being involved in the punk scene too they yeah. must have seen like this flat black flag flyers or you know that whole thing. So I'm, I think it's pretty obvious that they, well I don't, I'm not gonna say obvious, but I think that it's likely that they were um, they're influenced by his work. Yeah, I'd love yeah. to like, I'd to have that conversation with them. You know, Pettybone is like so iconic, especially if you are interested in hardcore punk. You know, and you're from, you know, the Bay, you know, the the L.A. Southern California world. You know, where that stuff's really prevalent. You know, through the '80s, because I think. Love and Rockets was in the uh, started in the eighties at some point. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's like it was relevant to the times, you know. Yeah. And, like that imagery, though it was on like a lower lower profile, was very recognizable. I'm pretty and, sure Jaime's brother is in Doctor No. No shit, really. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I didn't know that. Yeah, I got a. I've read that in interviews. I hope I'm not wrong, but I think that's true. Yeah, I should revisit all that stuff. I have like collections of their stuff because you, know, you can buy like the graphic novels with all the. Yeah. You know, those are great. Yeah, yeah. I have a couple books sitting around and I, feel, I picked one up the other day and I feel like I'd never read it. It's like everything that happened after, for a while, it was like the death of Speedy was kind of considered a peak for them. Yeah. And I, I could tell that people thought this. They did a lot of stuff from like 89 to 95, 96 is when they wrapped it up. And they started it up again. And I could tell, like, people kind of didn't really couldn't tell what this post punk stuff that they were doing was about. But uh, it's really cool delving into the stuff they did since they kicked Love and Rockets off again 10 years ago. Um, those stories are really vital. I think it's better than the stuff that they did in their first, you know, five or six or seven or eight years. I haven't read any of the new stuff at all. Yeah, it's good. Is it like the same characters like later? Or... Yeah, yeah, they they're smart. They managed to almost make Maggie and Hopi like framing devices around these other characters. So they have these new characters. They have this frog voiced character whose name I can't think of, who looks like uh, Ava Gardner. 
and she's like always it's, it's she's like a, like a model actress and she's always dating like these scumbag guys and Ray's in love with her and then there's this up and coming girl who's like this kind of athletic character whose name is uh, Angel I think yeah those books are really good it's kind of cool that you almost half the time you don't know who they are you're kind of you have to read the stories like two or three or four times anyways and those stories have I'm I'm able to uh, personally connect with those a lot and I think in a way that I used to be able to do with used to be able to find from Marvel Comics I mean and like you were saying they're taking some good chances like uh, in the early like 10 years ago they were doing a lot of cool shit like Garth Ennis on Punisher, you know Brew Baker, Brew Baker. Like those are probably the two shining examples of like solid writing in Marvel Comics. You know, like when they when they were when it was you know Garth Ennis and Brew Baker were working on the Punisher, like that sort of sequence. I think that I was feeling like wow, like mainstream comics are actually going somewhere. Yeah, like they. They have good stories. The artwork's good. There's like a, it's not just like, you know, fist fight of the week or whatever, you know? No, those, those Garth Ennis Punishers are incredibly emotional. Oh, very, very much so. And also, um, most of, if most of Ennis's work, there's always like, um, you know, a sort of tongue in cheek, wisecracky sort of act, you know, accent to the whole thing, you know? But the Punishers that he did were pretty deadpan, really, for the most part. Like, there wasn't a whole lot of, like, for him, yeah. a whole lot of humor in it. No, that's you true. Know? I mean, if you read The Boys or something like that, it's like very, right. very humorous. Like, yeah, light, yeah. Oh, there's like a lightness to it. Some of the villains are pretty funny, actually. Yeah. Um, that Barracuda you know, Hero Gasm, you know, like that was pretty funny, you know. But when you read The Punisher, it's almost like he, he really pulled back on the humor elements and made it a real heavy sort of dark character, you know. Uh, absolutely. And you said Brubaker. Do you think he wrote the Punisher? I don't think he did. I think he did. Okay, I'm sure he did actually. And I know he took over Daredevil from Bendis. Let me let me verify that. Just give me a second here. I want to say that Brubaker did write for the Punisher. Yeah, I have um. I have like a reprint. I have a collection called From First to Last, and it's uh, a story that that Garth Ennis wrote with um. Who's the artist? John Severin Sr. Severin? Severin? I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. And um, I'm sorry, there's no there's no junior. I don't know why I said that. John Severin. And, you know, he, Severin, I looked him up. I think he was like, he wasn't quite 80. He was like 79 or something when he did it. And it was easily um, just as fine as the stuff that he had done in the 50s. In some ways, maybe better. It's such a well-observed comic. Pacing is great. The color doesn't fuck it up too much. And it's a story of like the Punisher's first outing, like right after Vietnam. Oh, okay. And yeah. then at the end of it, they have then they have a story in the middle, which um, actually is kind of has some textbook examples of how not to draw a comic. Um, I show I know this because I've shown this all to my students before. And then the end of the book has the last Punisher story, and that was a series that Marvel was doing. They did the last Punisher, the last Fantastic Four, the last. And the last Wolverine story. And I don't know if any of the other ones were good. I, I didn't get too into them. But the last Punisher story had Garth Ennis writing and the art was... Um, he's the guy who did Den. Oh, uh, uh, Richard Corbin. Richard Corbin drew it. 
and it's it's really good. It's really really good. It's like um, Punisher is like um, in his sixties, and there's a there's a nuclear war, and he has this image of uh, like, and he's been in prison for like ten years when the bomb goes off. It's really really good, and it's like, um, um, yeah. So Marvel was facilitating a lot of good work then and they were doing a really good job of saying um hey let's unite let's have this multi-generational thing going yeah. on let's get this young writer and he let's if you can request anybody in the world who can you get who would you want to get and he's like john severin this guy's history goes back 50 years the easy comics it's a really extraordinary period i wonder if they're doing too much shit like that now what happens now i think <laughs> is like all these movies have destroyed any kind of franchises that they have. I feel like, like when they first started making these superhero films, I was, uh, you know, I was, I was pretty much into it. You know, I thought it was interesting. Yeah. But then after watching them and how they're just pretty pictures for more, you know, marketing merchandise, you know, I just feel like it's, it's set back the comic book industry, you know, it just set it back. And I think that as a result of that, the comics themselves aren't are not necessarily um, a medium for storytelling anymore. They're just a marketing tool to sell products, you know, to sell whatever, you know, whatever partnership they have with like McDonald's or Seven Eleven or whoever, you know, they're partnering with to sell toys and all that sort of stuff yeah. to kids. And I just think it's um, you know, any as as far in, into the future as they went with like you know like writers like Brubaker. You know Garth Ennis and you know Mark Millar and all these other people. Yeah, that all that work has been undone by I think the advent of like the superhero blockbuster summer movie. You know. Yeah, I'd guess I, um, I, <laughs> my friend Rhett did like a live reading of the first issue of Marvel Civil War Two. Yeah. Boy, that was uh, looked pretty fucking bad. Though Bendis, when he did Secret Invasion, that was kind of a bad series. But he's so good that when the pressure was off, like he had to do this big blockbuster comic and it wasn't very good. Those had some good moments, but he's so good that around the margins, he's able to do these character driven stories and the yeah. tie ins. Mm-hmm. The tie in books were good. Yeah. There was a, probably talked about it on here already. There was one about um, focused on Hank Pym that was awesome. So this one definitely seemed terrible and the art was so had so many cheats in it it seemed real rushed like lots of you'd have a double page spread with like eight with like four rows of four panels and there wouldn't be a background in any of them (laughs) weird and the coloring the coloring is really smothering a lot of this this art and the books are expensive i've been thinking about that oh yeah man uh since we planned to do this talk i'm just like I'm, I don't care how I kind of don't care how good a book is, if it's um, four or five six bucks and I'm going to read it in seven and seven or six and a half minutes. Yeah, I'm sorry, I just I'm not going to fucking do it. Nah, I agree with that. If if they're three bucks, I'd still be buying them. You know. Yeah, I I hardly read any comics these days. I read um I read Walking Dead, and then if there's anything interesting that's new, I wait for the trade to come back and I I, buy, I might buy the trade. What, what comics did you get into when you were a kid? Oh, when I was a kid, uh, Batman, obviously, um, Iron Man, Captain America. I was a huge Conan fan, huge. Cool. 
And all the Robert E. Howard characters, like King Cole or you know Conan, so, Savage you, Sword, like that shit. So you mentioned um, Roy mm-hmm. Thomas before. Did yeah. You, did you like his writing when you were a kid? Yes. And yeah. how do you, how do you like him now? Um, I feel actually some of it, like the Conan stuff, I can reread definitely. I'm trying to think of the non-Conan work that he's done. And I'm not sure if I I'm not sure if I've revisited any of that. Um but I can reread the Conan stuff. Just and curious. Still enjoy yeah. it, I always know? found him real wordy when I was a kid. Yeah. Um and I read an interview of Gilbert Hernandez and he was like and he said he thought he was stupid when he was a kid because he didn't get Roy Thomas and then he got older and he's like, No, this guy just sucks. I mean <laughs> <laughs> He's yeah, he was pretty verbose. But I mean yeah. also when you when you're reading Conan, it's like you know, any even Robert E. Howard, like the, it's like a very flowery kind of like the, mm-hmm. you know, it's like in these like ominous, you know, descriptions and everything, large in life descriptions. So I mean, it kind of lends itself to somebody who uses a lot of words and is very verbose. You know, a lot of a lot of these guys who I love now, um, I didn't like them as a kid. You know what holds up though, man, is uh, Tomb of Dracula by uh, Mar- 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 Wolfman. Mar- Wolfman. Yeah. yeah. The thing I love about that is it, it the whole story arc, it's not it wasn't meant to ever to be an ongoing series ever. There's a beginning and an end. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it was like I think sixty issues or forty, fifty issues or something like that. They definitely go past fifty because issue fifty had the Silver Surfer on the cover. Okay. Yeah, I wonder how many. Yeah, I think it was like sixty. It was 60, under a hundred. Yeah, it was only like, yeah. like two digit, um, you know, numbers. But yeah, and but there was like a trajectory that it went through. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and it wasn't just like meant to go on forever and ever and ever. You know, that's how Ghost Rider is. Yeah, another great character. Uh, another great character, and that that comic started off like I went. It's a difference is it wasn't from the beginning. Like the first thirty issues, twenty seven issues of Ghost Rider before. Flesher got on there. Yeah. We're weird and kind of off. And man, Flesher did... He, I wonder... He did such a good job of rebranding Ghost Rider and did something like similar to what Alan... Alan Moore did something similar to what Flesher did. Yeah. Like basically sort of stripping away a lot of the... A lot of stuff that were slowing down the characters. Mm-hmm. Like they had this great story where Ghost, <laughs> Ghost Rider is chasing the orb who was like his Green Goblin. Yeah. And the orb was kind of a silly character he just had a big eyeball for a head and he could i think it could shoot mind control beams or laser beams out of it and i think if he took off the helmet he was really deformed but aside from that he wasn't super powered and flesher took this character and he just kind of reversed it like he's like he the orb hated ghost rider because he was the one who got his face ripped off and uh, Orb's face was ripped off by Ghost Rider. He blamed him. And so he's like always fucking with Ghost Rider. And in Flesher's story, the dark side of Ghost Rider starts taking over and he starts becoming more of an actually uh, split personality with yeah. this really aggressive Ghost Rider persona taking over. And there's this issue where the Orb is like all smug and he brings his henchmen to go fuck with Ghost Rider. And Ghost Rider, they chase him for a little bit. And he just basically tur- he he flips the script on them and starts terrorizing them. And at one point, the orb is like, I think he's driven off a cliff by him. And he's thinking to himself, like, I've never felt fear like this. I never knew what I was facing. He's insane. He's really scary. And they, uh, but before that, I think there was a dumb idea where Ghost Rider looked like a terror, 
but he was always faking being a malevolent character. So yeah. he was always thinking to himself, oh, I, I forgot to scare the hell out of these people. Right, right. I better put on my fake scary voice. And he got, Flesher got rid of all of that. Yeah. yeah. And that's when the story really starts. And then the next 40 issues until they canceled it at 75, I think. Yeah, it was another relatively short lived series. Yeah, but it was every other month, so it's more like it was our entire childhood. Right, but I mean, yeah, it was, but it, but still, there weren't a lot of issues though. You know, what no, I mean? no, yeah. but they mattered, and it was like six issues a year, yeah. for years and years because it's bi monthly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there wasn't that many, but my experience was I went from being a kid in the seventies, and Ghost Rider had been running since I was, I think it started in seventy five, it must start in seventy, and so it ran in seventy eight. And then what turned to the 80s and everybody's listening to, you know, when everybody's listening to Led Zeppelin start playing synthesizer on their music. I am, man, through the outdoor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Ghost Rider was still out there. And then J.M. Demetheus came on for the last couple years. And J.M. Demetheus, he's another guy who he really, his spool ran out. Late J.M. Demetheus, I remember being pretty thin. Yeah. But early stuff was genuine. He was a motherfucker of a writer at a certain point until... Maybe all the way until uh, he did Captain America 300, I think. Right. And that was a pretty amazing story where he went into the Red Skull's Nazi childhood, his Nazi past. Yeah. Like deeply into it. And I think after that, he, oh, he, then he did Defenders when nobody gave a shit about that Yeah, script. I was never a big Defenders fan, really. It's, it was like, they, they kind of were hit and miss, I think. I liked it a lot. Yeah. I mean, not all the time though. Yeah, I mean they had they had I guess they had peaks, but I just didn't pay attention, I guess, and I missed all that stuff cuz every time I tried to read it, I was just like, "Eh, I'm not really into this." And you don't have older siblings, right? No. So yeah, that was me. I was always getting my comics passed down to me from my brothers. So they had like um Gerber's Defenders. Oh, and okay. I was I, when they weren't home, I just pour over those again and again. And I was kind of too young to be buying these comics. I was born in 70, so I wasn't toddling off to the store when I was five. I was reading all my brother's comics who were teenagers. You know what I thought was really cool? Like, when you go to the 7-Eleven, like, the Savage Sword of Conan was more, like, on the top shelf, closer to where the porno mags were. <laughs> I don't know if you bought your comics in newsstands. Yeah, for sure. It's like that, like, those black and white Warrens and, um, you know, Savage Sword and... uh rampaging hulk like those magazine style books that didn't have the comics code yeah so there was like nudity and extreme violence in it they always put them higher up like on the magazine rack so like they're like recessed back there with like sure you know like cherry and you know penthouse and all that stuff was like higher up so you couldn't if you're a young kid you couldn't reach up that high yeah yeah i saw comics at that period as serving sort of a social function i mean there, I didn't. I couldn't afford a lot of entertainment when I was a kid. I couldn't even seventy-five cent comics. I actually didn't. Rarely bought them. I read yeah. all of them on the newsstand, and uh, I don't really see. Well, I guess. I mean, I, when I used to go to SVA, I there's a Barnes and Noble yeah. like around the corner, and it's true that if you ever went to the comic book the trade paperback section there'd be like it was almost like um when you go to the wrong subway train there's a bunch of homeless people sleeping there'd be like five six people lounging and some of them were like middle-aged guys like us just standing there just 
reading the books and you could see all the books are really thumbed over. Yeah. So yeah. people people still love a deal, but I miss the I miss the comic rack yeah. and the books looking disposable, you know? And they really are cuz they don't hold up, man. As I as I as I pour through like my crates of books that are at my parents' house, they're just like a lot of those early stuff I bought in the, in the 70s and the 80s, I just didn't take care of them. And they weren't in bags or anything like that. Yeah. They're just like completely decrepit and like Ugh. just like disintegrating. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, the, the, all of my Conan stuff, though, I always put those in bags. Like once I started realizing that these, these types of resources existed is when I started taking care of like Savage Sword of Conan and Conan the Barbarian and King Conan. Those are always my favorites. But um, Moon Knight was like another character that was like, they keep trying to bring him back. Yeah, they sure do. And it just never clicks. And I'm, it, that baffles me. Yeah. Because he basically is the Marvel version of Batman, which is like a you know, wildly successful character, you know, with a supernatural twist to it. It's pretty visually striking. I saw they were rebooting him and he was just wearing like a suit with a mask, I think. Yeah. I it, thought it was really... He's, it's, I mean, he's always had a striking look, mm -hmm. but... Um, those issues were, you know, a lot of times I've read comics and complained in, internally about how they draw the characters. They're always going to, uh, especially these days, they're um, making everything so polished. Yes. But I think a lot of the artists would prefer, I've noticed a lot of artists who will try to bring in the thing that Paul Pope did when he did Batman Year 100, where Batman is wearing like... Um, old-fashioned boxer short mm -hmm. not boxer shorts but yeah, boxing like trunks. boxing shorts yeah boxing yeah, trunks yeah they have like that old uh what do you call that way that you do the rope like big yeah like the laces on the ropes and like that yeah. yeah yeah definitely yeah and there's like laces in the boots and yeah. he kind of looks like he has like like a big uh what do you call those ropes that you um repel like big repelling ropes like yeah. on his belt utility like belt type thing yeah like I see artists trying to get the companies to let them do that. I just saw a guy the other day who drew an image of like Superman wearing those kinds of shorts. Um, that shit's really cool. And yeah, the direction that they've always, especially in the eighties and nineties, everything was super, super slick and people were wearing, um, uh, wearing stuff, which is kind of insane looking. And, uh, I, when they, when I saw they were rebooting Moon Knight recently and he was, just he looked like he could have walked out of a um uh a Brubaker criminal book. He was yeah. just wearing a white suit. Yep. I think Warren Ellis wrote those. Really? I think so, yeah. Which I, I thought was an odd uh choice of, of writer. Or if they were to sort of explore his multiple personality thing. Yeah. Like if they if they approached the character more of like him with a mental illness as opposed to a guy with all these different disguises. Yeah. If they'd have gone in that direction, I think Warren Ellis could have done a really, really good job. I read the, I read a couple issues. I wasn't into it, and I just kind of gave up on it. I read uh, a Bendis series they did where his his um, mobile personalities were all like Captain America, Wolverine, and Spider-Man. Really? Yeah. Huh. Um, it was actually pretty gripping. I'm always impressed with how Bendis... We're often impressed with how Bendis is able to understand like cliffhangers and three act structure and how to make you feel like that character's at risk. I remember I read the first few issues and it was drawn by Alex Malave, who had done the Daredevil series. Yeah. Uh, I remember it being pretty good. I mean, it's probably ultimately a little bit disposable, but I was into it at the time. 
Have you checked out um, any of that Preacher series at all? Nah. To watch any of that? No, and I haven't read the comic either. Really? Yeah, you and Jacqueline, I know, are huge fans. Yeah, big time, man. Yeah. I, um, yeah, like when, when it came out in the 90s, I was all about it. And uh, yeah, that's some of Ennis's, like, that's kind of what put him on the map, I think, really, is that epic. Yeah. And once again, that's another story that was never meant to be an ongoing series. There's a beginning and an end to the story. Mm. And it was an epic. It kind of stretched on through, you know, once again, that, like, 100, I think, yeah, not, not even a hundred issues, I think, you know, and, um, you know, it was in the, at the time, the newly launched Vertigo imprint on DC, you know, where they were, that's where, uh, you know, Swamp Thing was, uh, was, uh, published on Vertigo. And, right. You know, and Sandman and all that other stuff. Yeah, yeah. So that was, you know, it's funny. I just recently started reading Sandman. Oh, really? I never oh, read it. Never. You know what? Yeah, it's funny. I revisited it this year, too. I read it when it came out. Uh, yeah, what do you think? It's pretty great, man. First 20 issues are really cool. Yeah. And um, I don't know what it was about that particular time. It just escaped me. I think mm. I, think I, I started noticing it when it was like, you know, on like issue 10 or something like that. And back in those days, if I didn't grab it from issue one, I kind of was like, I don't know, man, should I read it? Right, right. Uh, do I have to go back and read the first 10 issues or something, you know? It's funny because I don't know, like I actually have a care. I have a new, doing a new comic where I have a character reading Sandman and he's like, oh, I'll read this, this. And then he's reading it and he's like, he's a kid who's into hardcore and he's reading it and thinking, I can't believe this gothy looking bullshit is so good but the fact is like back in like 89 when it came out people didn't really to me at least maybe it was me i don't think you identified substratas of counterculture that easily if you saw somebody who had big spiky hair you might not you probably wouldn't spend much time thinking oh they're like a robert smith fan you would probably think they could be a casualties fan. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's kind of before I knew who the casualties was, but you didn't have those clear definitions. I just see people wore a lot of dark clothes and makeup and hair, and I kind of think to myself, well, I hope they'd be into Black Flag or something. You never knew. You never knew. They usually weren't. Yeah, there was no there, but the, yeah, there was no clear delineated uh, subgenres like you're saying. You know, it's like you know, band like TSOL, which was clearly. Uh, active and actively a hardcore band uh-huh but they had a lot of elements of like death rock and you know there's like you know jack grisham you know very yeah. wearing makeup and yeah, crazy yeah pirate hair. shirts yeah yeah it's like stuff that would look more like a christian death like more like Roz williams type shit you know <laughs> yeah it's really funny who else is like that Roz williams kind of on the other way like well, who's, Roz Roz, Willi who's Roz williams christian death oh, oh you know christian death that like you know death rock band but also yeah kind of like kind of punks though you know rick agnew played in that band you Who's know rick agnew from uh the adolescence oh okay yeah so it's like at the end of the day it all kind of goes back to the same kernel you know of like punk hardcore you know being different right being an outsider you know and it's sort of everything kind of fractured off into these different things where it's like you know you like when i was in high school i had this girlfriend um you know, her name was, uh, was Natalie, and, uh, you know, she was, like, a punk, you know. It was, like, the first, like, punk girlfriend I had. And, I, you know, I was, like, six, you know, 17, going on 18, maybe. You know, she's a year younger than me, but she was into, like, the best music, though. Like, she was into, you know, 
the cramps, you know, uh, the cure. Yeah. But into, you know, Ramones, Black Flag, Circle Jerks, like all that stuff too. So, it, but she looked like totally goth though, like with like jet black hair and like, you know, and that whole thing. Right. So it was like the kind of goth punk vibe that sort of blueprint was like set out in front of me is like, well, that doesn't necessarily mean you're into uh, just Echo and the Bunny Man. Like you could also be into Black Flag and also be into Echo and the Bunny Man and also be into like Slayer or whatever, you know? Right. So it's like, I don't know, but nowadays everything's so clearly defined that any kind of crossover is like, you know, forbidden somehow, you know? I remember like the compromise of like, I always liked that Darby Crash like looked like he... Well, first of all, he had like a wardrobe that I could afford. Mm-hmm. It was always like jeans and t-shirts and boots, and uh, it's kind of it. He'd have like one accessory, and I knew all the people that I loved wanted to be Darby Crash. Rollins wanted to be Darby Crash. The um, guy from uh, Poison Idea wanted to be Darby Crash. And but be honest, when I got into punk, it was there was a big. It's almost like getting into like a group of friends who want you to like jump off a, you know, rappel, uh, not rappel, but go cliff diving with them or something. Yeah. It's like a big moment coming in punk where you know you're going to have to walk down the street. I was in Ohio where you were going to have to walk down the street at like three o'clock in the morning, like with a mohawk or yeah. something. So uh, even shaving my head back then, mm-hmm. I'd just be like, statement. it was a statement. And I always felt like I was putting my neck out over, you know, putting my neck on the line. Because, um, you know, I'd shave my head because I was like, fuck everything. But I would kind of be like, I hope this grows out soon. I really yeah. don't want a lot of trouble in my life. And uh, I remember I'd constantly have that dialogue with myself. I'd be like, I'm punk. I'm punk. And I was kind of glad that there were options for how I could look. So I didn't feel such an obligation to have to walk around with a big attention grabbing sign on my back because I was always afraid. I was in Ohio. I was afraid of getting, uh, getting stomped. Yeah, totally, man. What's fu- what's really funny though is, um, you know, yeah, of course there's the very obvious things like having Mohawks and whatever, but the funniest thing is like years later when I was in my twenties, I was in this band and we were traveling and we didn't look particularly punk. Like we just, you know, t-shirts, Dickies, yeah. you know, boots, sneakers, you know, that's about it, really. You know, chain wallet, like very, very workman looking. Yeah. Right. I remember we were driving through Montana. Okay. <laughs> and I'm like, I was tripping out. It was the first time I'd ever been out west. I was like 24, I think. And I'm just like, wow, oh, this is fucking beautiful out here, man. This is great. We're driving. I'm like, oh, this is lovely, man. Butte, Montana. We stopped to get fuel, right? We pull over in a gas station. What year is this? Nin- uh, 1990, somewhere in the mid, mid. 94 95 yeah. somewhere around there it wasn't as late as 96 but it was like maybe 95 let's say nice round number like that <laughs> so we're driving and we're we need to get fuel so we pull over in butte montana and we go to a gas station and like we get out of the van you know go and get some like, coffee or whatever it's a fucking pickup truck drives by and they're just yelling calling us faggots you know and i was just like I'm like how do you like that like we don't got blue hair. We weren't had you know any kind of like delineating characteristic that indicated that we were uh, of in some sort of alternative lifestyle, you yeah. know. 
And uh, I don't know what it is, but rednecks will always figure out that you're not living there. <laughs> yeah. Like, they'll figure out a way. They'll look at you. They'll, yeah, maybe yeah. they have, like, a, it's a scent thing, like how animals can smell other, you know, that this is not part of the pack or something like that, you know. But they'll always find a way to figure out who you are, even though you might look exactly like them. Because I remember when we were driving away. I'm like, we look like we were, like, plumbers or something. We didn't have any very, uh, you know, distinctive markings or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's just it's so interesting to me when that happens. I think I read an interview it was either with it's either with Billy Zoom or or with Ian MacKay. Well, I know are you know hard to mistake them for each other, but I remember it was the same thing where um, I think it was Ian MacKay where he said he was on tour and the same thing happened, and he had like short hair, but he had like toy glasses or sunglasses or plastic kids glasses on and he said those glasses were like a big blazing neon sign yeah. he said that he would get so much trouble i think it wasn't even on tour actually it might have just been in in dc that they just couldn't that was enough enough was enough with those glasses yeah that was it. yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it's um you know with that all said, I, I got to be honest with you. I've never really been fucked with it that hard on the road. It's like I hear stories from all kinds of people mm -hmm. getting, oh, yeah. getting beat up and like people like, you know, smashing the windows in their van and things like that. It's like I consider myself fortunate that I've never really ran into that kind of thing. You know what I mean? And uh, not even that long ago, um, I was on tour with a, my, another old band, but this is like more recently. And not we, Tombs. No, it wasn't Tombs. It was Anodyne. And we uh, played in uh, Reno, Nevada, right? And um, this is the first time I'd ever been to Reno, Nevada. So it was it was a yeah, probably over ten years ago at this point. Definitely over ten years. Boy, time flies, man. Yeah. Um, so we we get into town and we're you know early in the day, time to get some lunch. So we walk into the, you know like the we look around and it's like okay, there's like a diner, there's like a Denny's, there's like this you know alternative sort of like vegetarian spot or whatever so we go there we figure probably go there it's like you know any of the kids would be there all the cool like punks would be there so yeah we go in there do dreads you know some chick with like blue hair or whatever and uh we sit down and, we, and then some guy like the cook or whatever comes out and he's just like hey man are you guys in that band anodyne i'm like i go yeah we are it's like yeah you know I know all the punks in town, man. I didn't know you guys. And I knew you guys were playing tonight. <laughs> so, yeah, man. It was like, that wasn't even that long ago. Yeah. But that's, I, st I have a feeling that the world is not like that anymore, though. You know, because I think this might have been like the late, no actually, yeah, this is actually quite a while ago. Actually, like actually wanted to, I wanted to ask you recently, like when I was younger, I would go see bands. And at that time, like if I wasn't, working or if i wasn't in school i would get so lazy when i was at my when i was at home and i'd go see a band like that i really loved like my favorite band at that time was the laughing hyenas mm -hmm. and i wanted to fall i didn't have a car and i couldn't drive if i could have i was pretty sure i'd follow them around like yeah. people followed the dead all i want I, I used to dream about seeing the hyenas it's really was really fixated on them like uh, them and Rollins and a few other people, and I'd read about like Andy Kaufman being around, being into Elvis, and being like it being like a religious thing for him to go see Elvis. Sure. And I'm like, well, I guess I have that. But 
at that time I'd be like, yeah, I'm not doing shit. It's like when I didn't, now I have a studio practice. When I go home, if I have spare time, I'm trying to sit down at my desk and get my work done. And back then I didn't have anything to lose because I didn't really, I was really, really trying to get, didn't understand how to get the pieces together and hadn't found work I was passionate about. Sure. So I used to read, used to read about um, people being on tour and I read Rollins tour diaries and it just seemed like nothing but um, much, there's a much more, there's a much bigger, um, you know, pro so series of pros than there was cons. I'm like, did you make money? You, you know, I thought you made money. You have some purpose in your life. You're doing something amazing. You're getting away from like just sitting around watching TV and just like being an asshole. And now that I'm older, I'm just like, fucking some days I need so much sleep and I need privacy. And I was wondering about asking you like, how has it changed for you being on tour or are these things like now I'm aware of like how hard it must be to go from one place to the other and having to organize with a band. A, was it always hard or is it hot? And like, were all these things like present that I didn't know about that made touring a real drag, which is what it probably seems like. And also has it gotten harder as you've gotten older? Um, fortunately it's gotten easier because, uh, things have improved with the type of uh, band I'm in, which is good. Um, I wouldn't be able to do it now if, if it was still the way it was in, you know, 20 years ago, if I was just like sleeping in, in the van and on people's floors every night. Um, but at the time when I was like in my twenties, you know, whatever, I was made out of Teflon, man. It's just like, I was just happy to be doing something that I thought was interesting and cool and expressing myself. And it was an adventure, you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of money in, in the nineties, at least not for the type of stuff I was doing. And, um, you know, it was like a very uh, cash and carry kind of low to the ground kind of operation I was in. Were you losing money? It wasn't that. It was my whole life was like a very low profile thing. Like I, yeah. I think when I was working at home, I was making $210 a week. So Sure. So that was like if I could do better than that, I was, it was a success, you know what I mean? So there was like no expectation, just the doing was actually the, the goal. With, with gas and eating and um, how much you're making per show, whatever else, other expenses come along, were you, would you guys like figure that out? And were you like, because you hear bands now who are like, you know, we, we, we're coming back $6,000 in the hole. Yeah, touring. That, well now that doesn't happen. Like now we, I knock on wood, we make money on the road, which is good with merchandise and, you know, like the, you know, we're, we're at a level, I think where, you know, we're not making millions of dollars, but we're done enough groundwork to warrant us getting a certain amount of money every night. And that makes things a lot, a lot more comfortable than they were back then. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, but back then it was just like not losing money was the goal <laughs> let's put yeah. it that way yeah i mean i've come back from tours back then with like nothing yeah debts and yeah. like just you know nowhere to live staying with a girl staying with a you know on the couch somewhere that kind of stuff but it was like that was the life though that was like the lifestyle when i do comics festivals um you know when the first couple of years i got into being able to table and yeah like sell books 
uh, I was really gung ho about it. If I got invited to, and, th- and now every city has like a major fest, a major independent festival. Yeah. When I, like in the early two thousands, when I first started hearing about festivals, I only knew of two, three. I knew of Mocha in New York, Ape Festival, uh, which is Alternative Press Expo in San Francisco, um, and SPX. And now it's like. You know, every city has one. My hometown, Columbus, Ohio, they have uh, Crossroads, which I'm going to go to. And I'm only going to it because I haven't been home in 21 years. And oh, it's wow. going to be like a Damn. yeah homecoming. But the logistics of it, I mean, I just skipped a festival recently and I was breaking it down to a friend of mine. I was like, okay, a weekend of teaching. Let's say I teach Saturday, Sunday, and Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I'm going to make, uh, that's a $300 weekend for me. Sure. Um you know, maybe, maybe 450, maybe, you know, somewhere around there. So I'm going to go away for a weekend. I'm going to lose that income. So I'm starting off baseline three, I'm out $300. Then I have a plane ticket. That's $300. Put taxes, maybe 380. So they're already, and so I'm going to go out there and I'm going to rent a table, which is $200, $180. So already I've just described paying out almost a thousand dollars to do one of these festivals then you're standing behind a table and let's say you're a runaway success and you sell thousand dollars worth of books you have already been you're already thousand dollars in the hole so you're breaking even to what you're doing is you are paying a thousand dollars to give away a thousand dollars of the merchandise that you've probably paid for yourself Think about picture a thousand dollars worth of books and t-shirts that I've printed out that I've like, you know, uh, and imagine that going out the door and you don't even see a penny of that. That's, that's, so the realities of like going around the country and tour and, and sorry, going around the country and exhibiting at festivals is hard. I know one artist, uh, um, Noah Van Skyver, who I really like, and he's like, uh, very much like, you know, like one of the people pe- people are going to talk about, like of mm-hmm. this generation, like yeah. to talk about Dan Klaus. And I saw on Facebook recently, he was goes, don't, don't invite me to your festivals anymore unless you're going to put me up, unless you're going to make me an exhibit and Fair a enough. special guest. Yeah. And if that's, that's the goal, I guess is to be that guy who can say that yeah. even, even then it's still hard. on top of all of that. You know, if you're working the other, five days of the week, the other four days of the week that aren't those three that I mentioned, you're sandwiching this little tour in between what could be a backbreaking schedule. So it, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy. What I see is that it seems like people will do what I did. Like they're younger cartoonists and they get really excited about the festivals, even if they lose money and they go to a couple of them for a couple of years, maybe they go to four of them and then they, a lot of them slow down. I'm always kind of amazed when older people who aren't, who aren't the A-list artists who are given like made made to be like special exhibitors, special guests, and are given you know they're flown out or they're given free tables. Right. I'm always amazed when those people go to every festival. I don't know how they make it work. Yeah, it's. I mean, I, I mean, I, I imagine with that you're building your brand that way. I guess that's very true. You know, and that's that's sort of like an intangible return that might be coming your way, but it's a gamble, just like being in a band. It's like. Just because you go out and tour like oh, 200 days out of the year doesn't mean anyone's going to like you, you know. It means that you might be going out there and just hitting a wall. Wow. But 
that's why you have to approach it in, in this more of this like kind of like spiritual journey. Like <laughs> I know that sounds weird, but it's like, it's not, it's not a, it's a business, but it's not a business. It's like, you can't, it's not like you get out of college, you, you get a job and you work in wall street and you make X amount of dollars, millions of dollars a year, but whatever, there's no path. Like there's no ABCD EFG steps to, to do any of this stuff. It's always like you go forward, then you lose ground and you're, all the way back here but then you get an opportunity and that propelled you somewhere else and then you go sideways for like two years and then like i mean it's as long as like your net your your net direction is forward then i feel like you're at least being successful and then all the other stuff eventually will come and that's and i believe that because i've experienced that in my lifetime that yeah you know i don't i don't like i'm not saying like the band itself, we're not like, you know, Metallica or something like that, or, or you know, Neurosis or whatever, where it makes, you know, the world's not going to be uh, clamoring the day that we decide to like, you know, call it quits, or we're not this legendary band or even impactful band. But I know that at a certain level, we can afford to do these things that we do. And then there's, there's an audience of people out there who are receptive to what we do. Um, but to get to this point in my life, I had to do all these other things, though, like all the stuff from you know, playing in uh, Norman, Oklahoma and like, a, you know, a, a house that was about to get torn down like two days after we left, you know, that's all part of like the journey to get to where you are. Like, I don't, if you break things down in these like integrals, each one of these pieces might be a, looked at as a failure or a success, but you have to add it all together and see where you are. You know, there are, you know, I mean, if I, if I had come to a point where I'm like, you know what, man, I got no money. I'm in debt. No one gives a fuck about what I'm doing. I think I might just make music for myself. You know, I might just stay home, you know, and like get, you know, fuck around garage band and, and just make music for myself and do my job every day with the postal service or whatever and fucking, you know, kill myself when I hit a certain point in my life, you know, (laughs) but that's not where I'm at. So as long as I can keep maintaining the positive, you know, viewpoint in my life and, feel good about what I'm doing, then I'm going to continue doing it. You yeah. Know? And that's yeah. kind of how I look at like the creative life. It's not, you know, you're not, there's no, there's no, uh, you know, pension plan. There's no guarantee that all the work you're doing is even going to go anywhere. Yeah. You're lucky if you, you're, it's true. That's the other component is like how, how good it feels to have a passion for, for something. Yeah. Recently I had a, I got called up to do a, um, thing for Kickstarter. They wanted me to teach at a, at a, work retreat that they were throwing upstate and um they invited me to do it and it was during the summer and i take every gig i can get sure because uh, i don't i teach like kind of part-time i make it through teaching like all year round this, this year i was teaching seven days a week wow damn and when you first met me you know i've had that comic book i was just a bunch of different shop. items in the fire yeah. yeah i was working at a comic book store which I actually also had a passion for yeah. oh, I, I like that job a lot and I, you know, I enjoyed being, you know, humping boxes up the stairs and all that stuff. Um, I enjoyed making Mark, like helping Mark make his operation run smoothly and working for Mark also in some ways affected, it actually affected the direction my art went in, but now I'm teaching. And anyway, so I was teaching this job for Kickstarter and, uh, they invited me and I woke up that morning and I had some kind of urinary tract infection 
and I took, I was like, fuck. And it was like a good payday. It was like, um, it was like, it was one day gig and I was getting a very good pay rate and I needed that money like for, if I didn't make that money that week, my, like how much I was bringing in that week was just not going to match up with how much rent I had going out. So I'm like, fuck. And I woke up and I was like, I I went to the store and I, the, 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 um, Rite Aid and cause there's no time to go to any place better. And they, uh, gave me this fucking shit, which turns your pee orange and (laughs) stops you from having to pee every 20 seconds. Oh, wow. Damn. I woke up in the morning. I had to pee every 20 seconds. I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to fucking do this job. So I got on the train and the stuff started to work, but my pee turned like bright orange. It was really scary. Maybe give me a lot of sympathy for, for women because women get more urinary tracts than men by like by a hundred to one, a hundred to one ratio. And, uh, but it went to the, it was sort of like when you take an allergy suppressant, like you, all you can think about is that sneezing. And then you take an allergy suppressant and you know, it's just a surface thing, but you feel better. So, uh, I was able to not pee every 20 seconds, but I was peeing like every 20 minutes. And then I, and I was like, fucking, I need to do this job. I need to, in fact, I was thinking about, in a weird way, I was thinking about how much comic books had influenced me. I was going up, I was on the train, I'm like, I feel like shit, and I started thinking about when I was a kid, and uh, all the issues of Spider-Man that I had, where he'd be fighting crime with a concussion, yeah. or he made like his own, he broke his arm, and he just made a, a sling out of webbing. Yep. And I was like, I really found myself thinking about that. I'm like, wow, I guess some of these hero archetypes that you read when you're a kid, they stay with you your whole life. I can't believe I'm thinking about this silly silly thing to get me through this but i was and it was helping i was thinking about spider john ramada's spider-man with like little weird colors flashing around his head to show that he had a concussion anyways my point was though when i got up there i taught two classes was four hours and i realized towards the end of like the first two hours that was the only time the entire day i hadn't thought about my urinary tract infection in fact, I only th- I think I had to stop. I think I had to leave, to use the bathroom a couple of times, but it was all I'd been thinking about until then. If I had stayed at home, I would have. It's probably health. It's a lot healthier for me to get out there and do that thing. And so I understand. You know, the you can have a lot of shit when you're on tour. I'm sure. And I'm sure the if you, when you have a good show and you're up there and you're yeah. you're playing, you it's forget cathartic, about all of it. A cathartic experience in a lifetime in a stage in history where so few people get to experience catharsis like most people you, you know you, you i feel so fortunate that i have things in my life that give me that you know either it's uh you know playing music writing music or training martial arts i have a cathartic experience on almost an every every day almost pretty much and most people don't ever have that in their life nor do they know how to live a life that has anything remotely like that in it and that's the nature of being a human is, I think, to experience life at that level. And so many, so few people do, you know, and that's why it's important to have passion in your life. It's not like, you know, we're not, made, we're not, our destiny is not to wake up and punch in and sit in a fucking cubicle all day, man. That's not, you know, I've tried, I've done that too, man. Mm-hmm. I know that world in, intimately and that is not it, you know. And even the people that think that it is it, deep down they know it's not it. You know, and, most, uh, most people I'd, I would say that's true on a level, but most people that you meet, they have like, they have like an internal life. 
you know, they have a job, but then they love exercising and they, a lot of people have like a secret, whole secret sex thing they might get <laughs> catharsis from. That's true. Yeah. I didn't think of that. Yeah. Yeah. Huh? But, yeah. but yeah, from, from an artistic standpoint, uh, no, a lot of people, how many people out there are like, you know, they're like, well, I've always wanted to be somebody who writes craft songs or yeah. somebody who crafts a comic book page. And, uh, it's one, th- you know, um, I actually it took me a long time to get my studio practice together. So I understand what it's like to feel like you're the last person in the world to get it, how to do this thing. And it does feel really good when you make, have the means of communicating, uh, in your hands, you finally figure out how to do it. Yeah. And like every time you talk to people that, that sort of live these, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to like alienate anybody by saying this, but it's like, you know, or even judge anyone, but most people just in our society, we're not given that as an option. Like most people, are, it's like a very, a very workman, sort of um, utilitarian life that we all, you know, that we're we're forced to, we're shown that direction by our that's parents in the middle sure. class. You know, yeah, okay, you know, you got to worry about your bills, you got to, you know, all this bullshit, you got to like buy houses and all this these goods and stuff and things that you don't necessarily need for survival or enrichment and. And that's that's that burden is put on yourself, so you have to go out there and, and work some job that you don't fucking like, you know, without any passions in your life, you know. So it's like most people you meet, they're like, "Oh man, you know, if it was up to me, I would have done this." Well, it is up to you, man. You don't have to fucking do anything you don't want to do, man. And it's just like that's not to say it's going to be an easy, you know, path because, you know, just like you know, like you, you know, it's taken you years to perfect what you do, mm-hmm. you know. It's taken me my entire lifetime to get to the point where I can play guitar well enough and, you know, understand the process of writing songs and lyrics and production to where it's like a 50-50 chance that I'm going to be successful at what I do. So, I mean, it's it's like a, a lifelong pursuit of trying to achieve things that are sometimes unachievable, but the closer you get to that with each attempt, you know, I mean... I, you've probably thrown out or burned countless things that you've worked on, you know, or, or just discontinued it. Same thing with me, man. I'll fucking show you a hard drive with like, you know, thousands of fucking kilobytes, terabytes of data of songs and ideas and MP3s of like fragments and songs that just, they just suck, you know? And it's just like compiled over years just so at every now and then I can write something that's good that I think is okay. You know, and that then that's the reality of it. You just you got to just keep plugging away at it, keep grinding. Right. You know, yeah. And um, you know, a lot of people don't understand that. A lot of people think that they can write songs or create art, and they can. But you got to put in the time and the yeah. diligence. You know, and the and the the dedication to what you want to do. You know, you know, and, and a lot, you know, if it gets hard, people give up or whatever. And then it's not for you. Then you don't want to do that. You do find something else to do. You know, basket weaving or you know, flower arranging. I'm sure there's like subtleties of those things that, you know, you have to spend a lot of time on too. And and the relationship that you, people have with perfection is also a big part of it. You can strive for perfection, but at a certain point you have to, it's going to kill you if you don't accept what you're doing. What you're doing might, might be great because it's not perfect. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's the thing, man. Perfection is like a, an ideal. It's not, it's not a reality, you know? And, uh, 
you know, I mean, I, I work a lot with movement and, you know, and, and martial arts and all that sort of stuff. And like, there's nothing's ever perfect in that world, you know, in mm -hmm. any situation, nothing's ever perfect. No one throws a perfect kick or executes a perfect takedown or like puts in a perfect arm bar. You know, it's always done in these like very subtle graduations of imperfection, you know, and it's like the result is what you're achieving and you're building everything around the result, you know? So, I mean, it's like, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's important just to, to, to that's, and I guess that we could bring us back to saying that, like, you can't approach being an artist or in the creative life thinking that you're going to like make all this money and have like financial security. Cause you're not, it's like, if that's a byproduct of the process, then absolutely that that's a great thing, but it's such, that's like the rarefied air, the people that exist in that world. For, yeah. For me, going back to what went wrong with comics, the kind of thread that we're thread that uh, we're weaving through this conversation. When I think back on when I was a kid, it was like comics were um, something that uh, it was a little bit like this feeling that the culture was providing this um, provide providing entertainment that was meant for kids. You know, it was meant for them psychologically, yeah. like, you know, spe you know, like, uh, uh, and it was meant for them pri price wise. Yeah. And I don't think that things will ever go back to being like that. For one thing, you don't, and if you're, if you're a poor kid or if you're middle, lower middle class or whatever, you or or below, below middle class or working class, you, uh, comics were, you know, um, they're a lot more affordable though honestly like i mentioned before even 75 cent comic was a lot to me i yeah. would usually not read them because i had to, if i had any money i had to use it to eat so uh uh but still you know i'd find comics would find there i get one occasionally and i'd read it and read it and read it like the comics i did have i would read until they were you know falling apart right and now I don't know if anything is, it's not going to be that way again. For one thing, kids have shitloads of disposable information. Yeah. They can get music for free. They can get entertainment for free. I think they still are looking for something if they value. And in the future, you'll find kids will really idealize whatever really matters to them, whatever they discovered, whether it's key and peel or something that actually talk to them where they live or, or whatever. Um, but it's not, I doubt it's going to be, I doubt no. it's going to be a fuck going to the store and buying four comics that end up costing you $23 no. once you've paid tax, tax on them. Yeah. I mean, it's expensive. I mean, it, that's what's taking me out of the loop a lot too. It's like, you know, but then there's also the, like all the companies have like an online digital version of everything too, Yeah. Which, but I, I don't enjoy doing that, honestly. No, neither do I. You know, I like re holding the book in my hand. My, my friends have been, a couple friends sent me like PDFs of their comics uh, to ask, you know, to, so I could, uh, you know, give them feedback. It took me a really long time to, I just sat down the other night because I had sort of like a evening off. Yeah. And I had had these books, one of them I had for two months in my email. And yeah, I have to, re you know, really force myself to read digital. And they, they were both great, by the way. Yeah. Um, but you have to really force myself to read digital stuff. Yeah. I, I just, there's something about the, I don't, maybe it's like, you know, our caveman eyes or whatever. They just, that doesn't, the experience just doesn't fulfill me, I guess. For I mean, I don't even like really reading articles online necessarily. No, me neither. I mean, I do because some things, that's the way you read them, you know. 
like blogs or whatever you know it's like that's the only way it exists is like a dig in the digital ether you know so do you, do you uh would you like to read that uh replacements biography that we looked at yeah on? yeah yeah that's i got about maybe 40 or 50 more pages left in that thing oh you mean as a loan well you know i'm just saying like as the book yeah you could of course you could borrow no it, no but, i'm not looking yeah. to borrow but thank you um yeah. i just won't read a book these days i listen to shitloads of audiobooks oh you're oh right you were saying that it's not available with audible yeah i'm really addicted oh, to audiobooks okay. yeah there's been a lot of like punk uh sort of stuff coming out lately that's uh like biographical keith morris's book is coming out really it's called my damage oh shit it's okay. got a thick pettybone drawing of him on the cover huh Interesting. For yeah, wouldn't surprise me. I petty bones friends with him and friends with Watt and yeah, some of those other guys. I think uh, yeah, the off burned. the off records have petty bone artwork on it. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, do you know you know who Terry Graham from the Gun Club is right? Terry Graham. Yeah, the uh, drummer. Oh no, I don't. And he did he play at Buffalo Tom too? No, no, he was in the Cramps and the Bags and the Gun Club. He was on the podcast a few episodes ago. Oh, check it out. Yeah, and he's writing a book. Oh, good. It's called Punk Like Me, and it's like, um, I mean, we talked about it on the podcast, but it's a, uh, you know, like a diary story. I mean, similar to like all the other stuff is. Like you read Rollins' books, it's like a diary entry yeah. version of like what it was like in those early days, and a lot of it's about Jeffrey Lee Pierce and, you know. And so his book's coming out, I think, midsummer. Like I, I worship Jeffrey Lee Pierce. I'd love to read that. Yeah. That's coming out soon. Um, there's that John Doe book, which I think you said you read earlier. Yeah, it's giving you my review before the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this replacements book is really good. I've heard. It's um it's pretty exhaustive, man. It's long. It is not a first person sort of account. It's, I mean, obviously they were interviewed, but um a journalist like wrote wrote it. It's like it is a little bit uh textbooky at times. But um there's a lot it's it's good. It's it's put together really well. And um, it really underscores how f fucking, how horrible of people they were, man. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, dude. Like, you know, I, I it doesn't affect how I feel about their music. You know, those first few, up until uh, Please to Meet Me, I love all the records. Me too. I can't stand the ones after Please no. to Meet Me. No, definitely not. I mean, you know, probably Please to Meet Me and Let It Be and Tim are like, some of the greatest like rock albums ever made man in my they're, opinion they're amazing yeah the early shit before that was great in a completely different way yeah like stink and and uh but even like with um even the early stuff like you can still see where they were going though it's like you know like that song go is like could have been on like you know let it be or tim i thought i'll check it out i yeah. remember that one yeah but uh, i mean I've, I've always been a huge fan of theirs I, I saw them once but it was before when i saw them too far too late in their career and it was like I don't even remember the show. Yeah. I just know that I went. Yeah. And I had recollections of seeing him play, but I, I was so unmoved by it. And it was like, I don't even really remember too much about it. But um, yeah, horrible people, man. Just cool. like, you know, the big takeaway was for me reading that, I guess maybe being someone involved in creating music and trying to do a good job is like, they were given opportunities to be professional they scoffed at those opportunities, which is fine. You know, if you want to be Gigi Allen, that's cool. But then, like, down the line, when they were complaining and wondering why they weren't successful and they'd already tapped out on, like, creativity. Oh, wow. 
Wow. Yeah. Then they wanted to be professional. Like when, when uh, Don't Tell a Soul and All Shook Down came out, they wanted to, oh yeah, we, you know, we want to talk to you guys at the radio stations. Right. You know? before, I remember they, uh, there's a story about how they really mistrusted CDs. So like they pressed CDs, a bunch of their albums, and they, as a protest, they took all the CDs and they threw them off a bridge. Yeah. And of course the video for uh, Bastards of the Young yep. was just, just a boombox, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, then later on they made actual videos, Yeah, you know, merry-go-round and, you know, prancing around and all this sort of stuff. And it was like, but it was too late, man. Yeah. You know, you, you missed the boat. Like you're, no one cares about, you know, your, your sales are down. Your music kind of sucks at that point. Yeah. And no one cares. You know, they were given opportunities to open for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, which, you know, hey, you could have easily not done the tour or you could have just sucked it up and fucking did your job. And that's how I feel about it. You know, it's like, instead they went out, made a mockery out of the whole thing. Did they really? Like they yeah. were under, undermining Tom Petty? Well, the thing that was really funny about it, it's like Tom Petty and his band, who I have nothing but respect for. Yeah. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, man. Oh, yeah, yeah. I like are such so pro about their approach that the shenanigans that they were pulling had no impact on them at all. And at one point, Tommy Stinson, they were playing like, it was a summer type thing. So they were playing, you know, huge arenas. And then the occasional, every now and then they would play these like Midwestern fairs. You yeah. know, like you'd see... You know, like a NASCAR event, you know, like not an event, but a NASCAR track that'd be like, you know, an outdoor show, fair type thing. And Tommy Stinson was like, you know, man, I hope this is the last time I, you know, I have to play a state fair or whatever. And Tom Petty said to him, I don't know about you, but I'm getting a quarter million dollars to play this thing. Cool. Yeah. So, I mean, to him, it was like, you guys will come and go, but I'm still going to be here. And Tom Petty still is here, man, doing yeah. his thing. Yeah. So, I saw, yeah. apparently, I don't remember it, but my brother told me that I saw Johnny Cash when I was a kid at the Ohio State Fair. That's fucking awesome. Yeah, I thought that I'd never seen him, you know? You just don't remember. Yeah, it's like your memory no. is so foggy at that. So uh, if they told me who he was, I don't. I wouldn't have known probably. I was probably that little. Wow. Yeah. But yeah, Glenn Campbell, all these people have an enormous amount of respect for. They do the, they've done those circuits. Yeah. You know, I wonder, somebody told me... Uh, it's just really cool. I was having this conversation with a kid that I tutor. And he's telling me about oh 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 who was it? It was um, it was a movie. It was like a Brat Pack movie. And what one of the dudes? I think it's that guy who's in Secretary. That actor with the hair and oh yeah, the blonde guy that was in Less Than Zero. Yeah, it was, and, uh... when he got he played um, boyfriend. I think it's Pretty in Pink. He came in to to, get, to do the role. And he came in like in character, like he was smoking and looking at the casting director of Contempt and stubbing out a cigarette. Uh-huh. And I when it worked, and he got this, he got the role. And I wonder how many people do that, like, and it's just ego. Wow. Like I gotta, I have to fucking play the game, but somehow circumvent the game and come in the back door and have be so toxic that people are going to fucking love me. Kind of like um, the seducers write about ne- negging women, you know like uh negging and like fucking giving you negative stimuli that you that you're gonna be so charismatic oh, wow, and yeah. pull okay. you in. Huh. I wonder how many people try to do that and are just like, oh, I heard that the repla- the replacements are like, man, if we were the Rolling Stones, we'd be flipping off, we'd be telling Tom Petty to go fuck himself and then it just they just trip over their own dicks trying to be assholes. I wonder how many people do that. Yeah. I don't know, man. I know 
my thing with them after reading this book, it's like they were just like severely emotionally damaged people that Mm. just were fucking assholes. That's like my analysis, my takeaway from the book. And like, I thought like, once again, I love their first few records. They sound relatable when you put it like that. (laughs) But like, I I would probably never want to be on the road with them, nor I would never want to in 1985 after a show, really want to try to relate to them on a personal level. But the music I think is brilliant. You know, I mean, Paul Westberg is one of the greatest, in my opinion, one of the greatest American songwriters, really. I mean, like, there's a period where his material was was amazing, you know. Do you like his solo material? I don't even know of any of his solo I mean, material. I, tr- I bought I bought the records because I was such a Replacements fan, and it's really not for me. Yeah, I remember they, uh, him and Joan Jett did a duet of like "Love Is All Around" the Mary Tyler Moore theme. I think okay. I remember that was such a big fucking deal to me. I love Joan Jett, and uh, when you hear it, it's just it has that ache about it like they're two people who really want to market themselves yeah in a right way and it was almost like a publicist getting together and saying this will be a perfect marriage your your hipness and her status put it together and then um yeah when you when you tell me that story i do remember that period where all of a sudden he was so willing to play the game yeah because he needed to make a living man and it was like yeah they were coming in the book the part I'm up to right now, it's just the aftermath of uh, All Shook Down. They're trying to go out on tour. You know, Chris Mars is out of the band. And he's they're thinking about what it's going to be like after the band and trying to make a living. You know, Chris Mars is like... Oh, oh right, right. He did he did art, too. Yeah, well, yeah. He was, that's, I think, what... And he actually put out a solo record that had some of his artwork on it. I didn't hear it either. I, I remember them advertising it. Yeah, I was yeah. always curious about it. You know, and it's like... You know, I remember there's a there's a, a line in the book where Chris Mars was like, you know, I think I, being a janitor might be a little bit more fun than being in the band. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, you know Tommy Stinson, I think, had a solo record years later, and and he was in Guns N' Roses for a minute, and you know one of the many people that played in Guns N' Roses. Sure. And um and Paul Westerberg, Freud. I mean, I think the Replacements actually performed recently. Oh, they've been touring. Oh yeah. Wow. Oh, oh yeah, they got together like the Pixies did, you know. Like yeah. uh, they, I know um, a few years ago when they were touring again, I know people who went out to see them. One of my one of my friends saw them and just said that um, Paul just can't do the vocals anymore. Yeah, it's not surprising, man. Yeah, yeah. But uh, said, I think he said musically they sounded good, and the there just wasn't that. You know, he has to have a really great friction in his yeah. voice. Yeah, he probably just doesn't give a fuck anymore, man. I mean, I can't imagine performing songs that were written like 20 years ago and having any feeling into it. That's why I'm always super critical of any sort of reunion, you know? Like, I'm not not big on any of that stuff, really. Yeah. Yeah. I saw Dave Smalley over the weekend. Oh, from... Uh... Yeah, Dag Nasty. Yeah, yeah. Pretty solid performance. But then it, from D, D, DYS. DYS. And Dag Nasty, yes. But then I found down by law too. Yeah. But then I found I discovered some friends of mine told me that he was uh this like conservative like right wing guy, and that kind of soured my uh, my experience because he was talking about you know at the end of the show he's like this isn't about money I don't people ask me why we don't play the big festivals and you know like it's about passion and love and all this other stuff and I'm like all right hold on a second here let's cool down for a minute here Jack. 
the reason why you're not being asked to play festivals is people want Dag Nasty. They don't want Dave Smalley to play a festival. They want Dag Nasty doing Can I Say. Yeah. You know, they don't want Dave Smalley doing Can I Say. They want Brian Baker. They want these motherfuckers. They don't really care about you. So that's kind of a lie. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then later on, I find out that this guy's like, you know, pro Bush and like this kind of war hawk, you know, like post 9 11, he turned into this like super right wing guy. It's you know? crazy. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, you know. The, I wonder like, how many guys are like that. How many guys there are who are become like right wing nut jobs? I mean, and, you know, you hear about the extreme cases like, um, what's her name? Mo Tucker became like a Tea Party member, and um, I think who else, who else is a, a notorious right winger in punk? Who's the, the Ted Nugent of punk? Oh yeah, well Ted for sure, man. No, I mean he accused like the equivalent of like in punk though. Ted Nugent's another guy who I love his music, but his politics is kind of like, he's like, he's a nut job, you know yeah. what I mean? So you think of that guy's name? No, but something else I've been thinking about this week in regards to, you know, the whole topic of, topic of uh, choice, you know, about superheroes, yeah. Marvel Comics, DC, is with all the bullshit going on right now, with everybody being so... Um, uh, Everybody, you know, so much of this crazy dark heart of America rising to the surface. Right. First, there's this um, defensiveness that came about that post 9-11, mm -hmm. kind of we have to watch everybody uh, att attitude, all these. I've seen so many fucking swastikas, yeah. you know, like in public, just like this weird, uh, you know, vigilante mentality of the cops. I wonder how much of it just goes hand in hand with as much as I love comic books. I remember David Mazzucchelli is my teacher in school, and I asked him, why did you stop? You know, you went, you did Born Again, and he did uh, other works of Frank Miller, and you just stopped and started doing heartfelt, independent, quiet stories. And he said it was Reagan, he said it was Reaganomics that did it for him. He said it was like I'm turning on the TV, and I'm seeing Oliver North, like right at right the same time I'm doing these superhero comics, and I was, he started questioning it seriously, like what he was doing. So yeah, that's interesting. Part of me feels like, you know, movies are bigger than ever. I haven't seen any of the superhero movies in five years. I yeah. I've, I stopped with, uh, stopped in 2009. But, um, yeah, I, I wonder how much it goes hand in hand and how much it is a good thing if some of this shit dies. Yeah, but then again, there's, um, I mean, I know this is not recent, but the Batman stuff is like, like the, you know, the Christian Bale Batman trilogy. Has like doesn't have like a vibe like that. Mm -hmm. If anything, it has more of like this like sort of outsider kind of trip to it, as opposed to like playing along with the government, you know, agendas. And actually, I think um, what was it? It was a uh, the Captain America movie, or was the uh, the Avengers? And one of them had like a kind of an anti-government, like libertarian, like kind of vibe to it too. But yeah, I mean people oftentimes get confused with these things too. Like maybe the subtle narrative that's going on escapes some people. But yeah, it's well said, you know, but, uh, but they just see explosions and guns and they're like, all right, cool. I want to go out and like blow shit up. You know, that's possible too. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, thanks for coming by Josh. Yeah. Thank and, you uh, for having me. You know, it was a great. nice time, man. It was cool.